all experience pain at some point, but is eliminating all pain the right thing to do? Dr. Anna Lemke is the author of Drug Dealer MD, a book that explores the many surprising factors that contribute to the current epidemic of opioid abuse in America. In today's episode of the Nutrition Heretic podcast, we'll learn why patients become addicted, how drug companies contribute to the problem, and why doctors have gotten caught up in the system. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to NutritionHeretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Aloha and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. Today, um, I wanted to talk to you about my experience as a drug rep. Uh, before I got into nutrition, actually, it was kind of straddling the time where I was learning about nutrition and just enrolling in school. I had to get a job that would pay the bills. And uh, of course, living in New Jersey, the only jobs there are are pharmaceutical uh, jobs. So you know, I took it it really begrudgingly, but I, maybe this is just rationalizing it on my part. But, uh, one of the things, and in retrospect, I am glad that I did have the experience because it's firsthand experience versus kind of, you know, hearing things through the grapevine. Uh, but I really learned what the pharmaceutical companies think about patients and about people and about the drugs that they sell. Um, I had no shortage of trainers who told me that they don't care what the doctor's patients need. They need to be on this pain medication. And, uh, you know, kind of, uh, how do we say this, um, off, off the record, telling doctors that, oh, you can push that upper limit. You know, it doesn't, you, you know, you don't have to stop at 400 milligrams. You can go to 12 or 1600 milligrams and that's going to work fine for your patients. And it's perfectly safe because it, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't agitate the stomach or, you know, cause any, any kind of homeostatic uh, processes to f- begin failing uh, because it's so safe. You know, we could, you can just prescribe, prescribe, prescribe. And really kind of, actually not just kind of, it was incredibly disturbing uh, to see that uh, on the flip side, I dealt with a lot of doctors who said, I don't have time to 
argue with my patients because I was I was actually the rep who would tell the doctor, well, doc, did you see these side effects? Did you know that this could happen if you gave them the upper limit or you know beyond the upper limit? Uh, and many of them were very interested and said, oh, my gosh, you know, I just had a rep in here today who didn't tell me all the stuff that you're telling me. Uh, others were saying, well, you know what? I don't really care. I don't have time to argue with patients. They see the commercial on TV. They want this stuff. I just give it to them because I've got to make money. So, you know, the, it kind of ran the gamut of the doctors who really cared to the doctors who just wanted the whatever kickback they were getting from the drug companies um, or, you know, commissions, free lunch, whatever it was that they they were um expecting to get in return for prescribing. And, uh, you know, like I said, many of them, it was just the bottom line. I make more money the more people I can cycle through my office. Yes, very disturbing. In any case, that brings me to today's guest heretic. She is psychiatrist Anna Lemke and the author of Drug Dealer MD. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Lemke. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about these doctors who, you know, either either don't have time to be bothered or have just been misled about the safety of these drugs? It's interesting for me to hear the perspective of a drug rep um, because, you know, drug reps from a physician's perspective, they're always good looking. Uh, they're always very well dressed and they come in and tell you all the glories of the medication uh, that they're uh, advertising. Um, so it's interesting for me to hear your, you know, your personal story of having having been a drug, drug rep and having been horrified by what your employer, the uh, prescription drug uh, maker, uh, was trying to get you to do. And also, it sounds like you were pretty horrified by some of the, the physicians that you worked with. Yeah. I think one of the one of the major thrusts of my book is that um, the current prescription opioid epidemic or prescription drug epidemic that we find ourselves in is certainly um, in part due to aggressive marketing by mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry, as well as uh, opportunistic physicians who just want to make make a dime. But I, I one of the the main messages I really want to emphasize is that a lot of um, doctors who have been caught up in overprescribing of opioids are actually well intentioned good docs who yeah. who got caught in a system gone awry. Right. Now, do, are they getting caught? Because one of the things I learned. Oh, sorry. Before I go into that. Most of the women that I worked with were all cheerleaders, by the way, in, in college and high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all, <laughs> you're like, all really gorgeous. Like I literally cheerleaders. Realize, but, but I imagine you are beautiful. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, I was, I was the one they, they threw in just to mix it up a little bit, you know, <laughs> add a little flavor to the group. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, what I kind of see with, with the doctors is that, and this is what some of them actually told us. Um, actually, and they were the doctors that were hired to train us, um, at certain points that would say things like they didn't know what to do until pharmaceutical drugs came along. You know, like we knew what the disease was. We knew there was, we knew the, the, um, etiology and the pathology of this disease. We just didn't know what to do about it. We could basically just diagnose, but we didn't really have anywhere to go. Um, and, you know, my experience as a drug rep was that it was our job to educate the doctor. So, you know, they didn't really have 
that kind of training within medical school, but they were relying on the drug companies to do all of that end of the training of how to treat various disease states and pain. Oh, oh dear. That, that's a, that's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, the, the, the education that, you know, a pharmaceutical company will give is going to be all about the upsides and almost nothing about the downsides of a given drug. So, um, I, I really hope that doctors are getting more of their uh, their education in medical school and residency uh, and from reading the, the scientific literature than they yeah. are from, from drug reps. But, but you're absolutely right. There's no doubt that uh, drug reps have a huge influence on doctor prescribing, in part because of the frankly, biased information that most of them disseminate with an emphasis on all, on the upsides of their drug and not on the downsides, but also on the kind of kinds of perks that drug reps um, historically bring to doctors, either in the form of small gifts or lunches, or mm -hmm. even in larger forms like cruises or um, funding for their research or uh, payment for being on some kind of speakers bureau where they go around to talk to other doctors about the glories of a given medication. Right, right. And yeah, those are those are some of the kind of people that we had as well, because they would train us and then they would talk to the doctors as well. Uh, and yeah, it is um, it is something that I think the average person is not aware of how much is going on behind the scenes. Uh, that's and absolutely right. And that's really what I wanted to show in my book is is what what if you pull back that curtain on the medical profession, you know, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get cynical, and despite the title of my book being Drug Dealer MD, really my, my book is very um, – has a, I think is very pro-doctor and really tries to explain to people um, why even a well-intended well physician um, could be prescribing in a way that harms their patient. Right. And, you know, this was something that I found really interesting in your book as well because as a nutritionist – I also feel, you know, I have to deal with a lot of people who are, who say one thing, but want another, you know, they, mm -hmm. they say they want to change their diet and they're ready to change their diet. But then as soon as you tell them what they need to do, it becomes a, a point of conflict. And, mm -hmm. you know, well, I've been doing this all along and this is fun. No, it's not fun. You came here with a problem, you know, that you got to make these changes. See, I, I think that traditionally, and when I say traditionally, I'm talking about, you know, hundred years ago, <laughs> doctors <laughs> would say, you know, go home and eat these kinds of foods. These are the ones that will benefit your, your digestion, your pain, whatever. You know, that has, it's gotten to a point where, you know, that that's why there is something separate as a nutritionist. And there's the doctor who unfortunately has become synonymous, uh, you know, with dispensing drugs, you know, dispensing the quick easy <laughs> way of, mm -hmm. of getting relief, right? Or, or mm -hmm. you know, whatever mm -hmm. resolution to, to your problem. So, um, you know, when, when faced with that, uh, to learn that doctors are going through the same kind of conflict with their patients as I do with clients, where, you know, they, they come in and they're kind of dedicated, maybe because they saw the commercial or because, you know, they, they are on disability, whatever their, their thing is that they want to continue. And they're just like, no, the pain medication, that's what I need. That's nothing's going to work without the medication, without the surgery. And, and then the doctor isn't really trained from what I understand you, you saying. And I feel like I wasn't adequately trained to deal with basically those personality quirks, let's call them. 
Well, I mean, I think you're touching on what is really such a complicated problem to tease apart in medical care, which is that the the physician, him or herself, is highly incentivized to prescribe pills and do procedures and get the patient in and out in five minutes because our insurance company reimburses more for prescribing and for procedures than it does for educating patients or spending time with them. And at the same time, on the patient end of things, you know, people um, kind of expect uh, not just a quick fix, but also a miracle in a way. We, we don't have a culture that tolerates um, enduring uh, pain. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we have a culture that tells us that pain is, is dangerous and has no positive value in our lives and that in experiencing pain, we actually set ourselves up for future pain through a kind of uh, psychic process of creating a a kind of a neurological scar. Uh, We also have a lot of cultural narratives that tell us that doctors uh, can heal everything and that the body can't heal itself. Mm -hmm. And and these are are very uh, profound uh, differences from, let's say, 100 or 200 years ago. When doctors believed in the resilience and the healing power of the human body and also believed that pain in and of itself was salutary, that pain boosted cardiovascular function and boosted Mm. immune function, and that to take all pain away uh, was going to slow down the healing process. So we've really come a full 180 degrees in terms of how we conceptualize pain, both from a medical perspective as well as a cultural perspective. And that combined with tremendous pressures on physicians to get patients in and out quickly, that all conspires to prescribing a drug, particularly when that drug has the immediate um, pain-relieving effects of, of opioids. Right, right. And you know, I'm seeing a lot of parallels here with the previous episode um, that we did with J.P. Sears, uh, who does those satirical videos about spirituality. And one of the questions I had asked him was about uh, kids being coddled. And um, he said something very much parallel to what you're saying, which is that, you know, when children are, are, are protected from any kind of discomfort, any kind of pain, any kind of disappointment, they don't get to flex their emotional immune system, as he called it. And so they become very dependent and, and codependent as adults because they haven't ever had to deal with things that happen in life. Uh, is that what's happening with some of these people when they're getting addicted to drugs that they're they're because they've never had to deal with pain uh, and what sorry addicted to opioids let's say um, but you know they haven't had to deal with the pain and they and because of what you're saying with the cultural values changing around that concept of of enduring pain that they see more of a reason why they don't have to deal with pain why there's no benefit to the pain. Well, I think the process, you know, of opioid addiction is there are certainly those cultural elements which contribute to to it, but there's also a very um, profound physiologic change that occurs in the brain if opioids are taken every day, even if they're taken as prescribed by a doctor for a bona fide pain condition. And many people in this country live with severe and debilitating pain. So I would hate to suggest, you know, that all forms of pain are somehow 
um, you know, the product of uh, an intolerance to pain. There are people, you know, there are people who have really awful, uh, tragic and and very severe pain conditions, which greatly hinder um, their lives. Um, And opioids work really well short term for mm-hmm. pain. So they're very seductive in that sense, because especially for people who um, are suffering um, every day from pain in the short term, the opioids help. The problem is that if you take an opioid every day, the brain adapts to the presence of that opioid um, such that it stops working and you need more and more to get the same effect. And when you don't have access to the drug, you go into a dysphoric or withdrawal state, which is incredibly painful, mm-hmm. even more even more painful than the original pain condition. And this kind of uh, what George Kube, a neuroscientist, calls dysphoria-driven relapse is what can really drive addiction and drug-seeking behavior. Right. And, and what is, I guess, you know, we're, the first thing that comes to mind is that this, to me, sounds similar, if not exactly the same, as using street drugs, using alcohol to numb your pain, and, and the withdrawal people go through with those drugs. Are we? Is this somehow different? I mean, I know it's legal to do this, right? It's not considered damaging because of the way they've been marketed, perhaps, or, or you know, less potential for, for addiction, let's say, uh, the, the way that doctors are being told by the pharmaceutical companies. But is there any real difference between being addicted to a pharmaceutical drug versus being addicted to alcohol or cocaine? There's really no difference. Um, all of all addictive drugs work on the same reward pathway in the brain, and although each drug uh, works in a slightly different way and has a slightly different withdrawal phenomenon, the natural history and development of addiction is the same across all different drugs, and including uh, behavioral addictions like uh, compulsive yes. uh, sex, compulsive shopping, compulsive eating. It all works on the same a reward pathway, and the natural history is very similar, and it goes something like this. People begin with uh, intermittent use, usually socially, recreationally. Uh, Over time, they increase their use to daily use. Uh, Over time, what used to work for them for whatever problem they were trying to solve or uh, whatever high they were trying to reach, it stops working, so they need more and more to get the same effect. And then the continued use over long periods of time essentially resets the reward pathways in the brain such that even natural rewards are no longer rewarding. And when that individual doesn't have access to their drug, they go into a deeply uh, painful withdrawal state and then they need the drug just to feel normal. Right, right, right. And I'm glad that you brought up the OCD behaviors, because that was um, one of the things that I was wondering is, you know, when, uh, and maybe we'll get to this more towards the end of the interview, but, you know, when people have those OCD type behavior, or sorry, they're sorry, they're coming off of the drugs, is there a tendency to move towards other things, you know, hoarding or, or whatever uh, kind of behaviors? So we see this very commonly in the treatment of addiction, that an individual can get their uh, primary addiction under control, um, but without um, ongoing recovery treatment, they often switch addictions um, yeah. to hopefully hopefully a more benign version. Exactly. Um, 
but but in a more you know what we would consider let's say socially adaptive or optimal mm-hmm. um, kind of addiction. But it does require for most people a lifetime vigil- vigilance to make sure that the the compulsive behaviors don't overtake them. Right. So then, but so you're saying there are ways to channel them more positively, but it it comes with uh, continued, like you said, vigilance. Yes. So for example, I've had patients who were addicted to alcohol, be able to give that up and then start running marathons. Right. And for them, that was a, that was a good and more adaptive substitute, but you can certainly imagine a scenario in which somebody would run compulsively and possibly end up, end up, you know, injuring their bodies, in which case, you know, that, that wouldn't be a good outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. I have a friend who was in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and he said the first thing he noticed when he went to the meeting is everybody was smoking. <laughs> right. They, they, yeah. they, you know, they all they, nobody was right. drinking, but they they, you know, replaced it with something else. Right. Well, there's an inher- inherent hypocrisy in the way that we uh, approach addictive drugs and that probably uh, the, the two addictive drugs that ca- cause the greatest loss of life, not probably, but definitely the two addictive drugs that cause the greatest loss of life uh, worldwide are alcohol and tobacco, mm-hmm. which are legal uh, in most countries. Um, so so that's a, a strange kind of paradox um, because in truth, um, you know, alcohol and tobacco really, you know, work in, in much the same fashion on the same, on the same reward pathways as, as heroin or cocaine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, what you were saying about the habitual use, uh, and then we, you know, kind of segued into alcohol and, and smoking is, uh, some, some of the older school doctors that I've been reading, cause I, I love to look at my old stuff before, like all the marketing got at everything. And mm-hmm. I love to look at some of these older doctors, you know, from the twenties, thirties, forties, even up until about the sixties, they were writing some really provocative things. And, and one thing that comes up over and over again, uh, is the use of alcohol, Many of them will say, you know, because right now there's the, the, and I think we're just turning everybody into a nation of alcoholics, to be honest, but <laughs> we have you know, everybody <laughs> saying, oh, you got to drink your red wine at five and, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's good for you and you got to have wine every day because that's what the French do, which is BS because I lived in France and not everybody drank wine every day. Um, and as a matter of fact, I, I wrote a book called Frenching Your Food, which is about the way that the French just love their food. And, you know, everybody here thinks that we're being like the French because we drink wine. Very few of my thin French friends friends drink wine daily. Interesting. And, um, and one of the things that um, is mirrored in this old, this old data, or these old books and and texts that I'm reading, is that the occasional use of alcohol, even if you kind of overdo it, is better for you than the daily use of alcohol in small amounts. And the rationale that they all seem to agree on is that when you let's say you just you know binge drink right this like one weekend it's you know a wedding whatever and you just get sloshed their their understanding is that the body understands how to mount a defense to that when it's occasional but when it's every day it starts to think that it needs that and it becomes like part it tries to incorporate it into the body's system Mm. And so I just find, and, and I, I, I almost hear you saying something that echoes that. Well, well, let me let let me challenge your perspective just okay. a little bit, because um, large epidemiologic studies have looked at 
who are the healthiest drinkers uh, Mm -hmm. in the United States. And it turns out that if you look at all comers, those who drink no more than one to two standard drinks per week are the healthiest Americans. And the standard drink is uh, one 12-ounce bottle of beer, one five-ounce glass of wine, or one ounce of hard liquor. It turns out that those who drink in extreme moderation are healthier obviously, than those who drink excessively, Um, but but they're also healthier than those who drink not at all, which then raises the question, is is alcohol in moderation actually uh, physically healthy? And I think to that, we can say there's still some deal of controversy. There is... There are these various, um, you know, chemicals in red wine in particular that have been thought to slow aging. But if you look more closely at those data, what you find is that the probable reason that moderate drinkers um, have lower rates of morbidity and mortality than Mm non-drinkers is because that that non-drinking group includes what we call sick quitters. Who are sick quitters? Those are people who end up with cirrhosis or on the liver transplant list Mm. because they drank to such excess that they they need a new liver. The other uh, probable reason is that those who drink in moderation probably do a lot of things in moderation. They probably eat in moderation. They probably exercise in moderation. So, you know, when my patients ask me, is red wine good for me? I say to them, there's no real evidence that red wine in and of itself has some kind of health benefits. But if you drink in moderation and do many other things in moderation, the data tell us that you will probably live longer and be healthier than people who uh, use alcohol uh, in greater amounts than the two time two drinks per week. And certainly the data also, also show that any, any adult male who has more than 14 drinks per week or adult female who has more than seven drinks per week greatly increases his or her risk of all kinds of outcomes comes from liver disease to pancreatitis to cancer to death. Right. And then, and then I think we're we're basically saying the same thing because we're, you're talking about, you know, one to two drinks per week, which is pretty much what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you can have, you know, these these doctors are saying or, you know, a lot. Like I said, most of them are old school. Some of them are, are current and in France, actually. Uh, and they're saying that if you drink, <laughs> you know, and, you know, because if you don't drink often, one or two drinks might be enough to get you, you know quote-unquote wasted right (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um but uh it's the the it's the yeah seven to 14 glasses of whatever it is throughout the week you know even if you're just drinking a little bit every day but then your body kind of starts to expect it so you know and he's saying that yeah but if you you know drink once or twice a week your body's not going to you know your body knows that this is a foreign substance and it, ex- it exercises that immune system, basically. Right. So anytime you ingest a, an addictive substance in a high enough quantity that it causes your uh, set point or your baseline homeostasis to be altered, you've triggered a stress reaction. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to recover from that stress reaction, there has to be a reasonable period of abstention from that 
from that drug or alcohol in order to reset things. If you don't wait long enough between uses, then you basically set yourself up for a chronic stress reaction. And then that's, that's what leads to the, exactly. the long-term adverse health outcomes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, my husband, he's, he likes his, his little, well, he doesn't do it every night though, but he, he likes his little whiskey at the end of the day. I'm like, Watch right. It. And so I, mean, I, I, I think so. I think the important message is moderation yeah. and not some non-drinking days. Um, but I, I guess what I would want to emphasize is that binge drinking is also very unhealthy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, if, so if you're having, you know, more than 14 drinks uh, in one day, right. then you, you're doing serious damage to your body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, yeah. When I say binge, I just mean <laughs> I didn't mean yes, 14. Your, your but, version of a binge. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the thing is like okay. and some people's version of moderation. <laughs> actually, most people's version of moderation is usually not that moderate. <laughs> And of course, you know, with my population, I I treat people with addiction. So uh, for many of my patients, moderation might be one six pack of beer instead of two. Right. Right. Exactly. That's that's a very good point. So where does um, poverty fit into all of this? Like where, you know, you you mentioned um, how socioeconomic class may be one of the factors that end up, um, you know, playing quite a significant role. Yes. So a lot has been uh, said about the ways in which this current opioid epidemic uh, has afflicted middle class white populations. And um, in, 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 and in many discussions, that's been the source of much criticism that the U.S. Uh, government, for example, is only paying attention to this problem now because it's uh, afflicting uh, you know, white middle class suburbia. But if you look closer, what you will see is that um, over the last 30 years, it is certainly true that uh, the rate of opioid addiction and opioid overdose deaths has risen among middle class white populations, but it has also risen among um, uh, black populations and risen highest actually among Native American and Native mm. Alaskan populations. So uh, it's not really true to say that uh, um, that it has only uh, or primarily afflicted white middle class uh, groups. It's probably fair to say that it's gotten so much attention because it's um, afflicted primarily, you know, it afflicted that that group. But um, but the poor and people of color have definitely uh, suffered uh, during this opioid epidemic. And, you know, we well know that uh, socioeconomic uh, variables contribute to the risk of addiction. Um, so being uh, there are many risks of addiction, including uh, genetic risks, um, including the co-occurring mental illness. But we also know that poverty and unemployment and homelessness um, and other social determinants of health um, contribute to the risk of addiction. And, and one of the scariest things possibly is that um, for for the poor who have had health insurance in the last three decades they and who have gone to see their doctor, they may have been at even higher risk than the poor who didn't have health insurance and didn't go because in the 1990s, if you had pain and you went to see your doctor, especially if you were poor, they were like, likely to prescribe opioids because people who live in poor communities often don't have access to alternative pain treatments, for example, psychotherapy, physical therapy, mm, acupuncture, gotcha. massage, those types of things. So it's a very, um, it's certainly, it's certainly complicated. Um, but one of the points that I make in my book is that, um, 
you know, disability insurance has in essence become the modern social safety net mm-hmm. and disability is, is something that people um, can go on if, if they're unable to work due to a, a medical illness. But disability insurance, the value of income from disability insurance rose faster in the last three decades than uh, wages for um, um, baseline entry jobs. That's crazy, so, yeah. Yeah, so disability became a very attractive way for people simply to earn a living, um, and one can understand that. But in order to justify uh, disability, many individuals then have had to take um, potentially addictive uh, medications prescribed by a doctor, and so we're set up uh, for the development of addiction um, on, on, on many levels, having nothing to do uh, necessarily with an underlying medical disorder. Right. Yeah. You know, it's that was a particularly interesting part of the book because for me, because I have known several people throughout the last, yeah, probably 10, 15 years who have some kind of pain, some kind of something left over from a surgery. And uh, similar to what I was saying before, they've made up their minds that the only things that will help them are medication and surgery. So, you know, they'll ask me things, you know, they don't want to pay for it, right? But they can ask me questions about what's going on with their body. And that's, and that's when you know that, that um, they're not committed to really doing anything for themselves. But they'll say, oh, well, you know, what's going on here? And then they'll say, no, 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 but you don't understand. The tendon is, is tearing and it, there's nothing that's going to repair it. It's like, well, that's what, you know, the food you eat is what causes is it to repair you know mm-hmm. that's what holds it in place in the first place mm-hmm. but you know they don't mm-hmm. see that and it becomes you know and it's gotten you know very tense and then um one person came to me i, I do um uh an energy medicine technique called eft um, which is tapping on meridians you know it's very similar to acupressure and while you say uh different things and people actually i could tell it was working because they got mad at me Hmm. (laughs) they got really really angry and because it's the one thing that that eft is known for working for well on is pain you know i've Ah. i've had people who you know like i i would um years ago i was at a chiropractor and this uh, it was rainy and there was a woman there who had migraines and i helped you know tap her through all the different points and she because she said you know she would nor she was like about to throw up whatever all of that went away i saw her maybe 20 minutes later she worked at the health food store i saw her in the health food store and i said how are you feeling she goes i actually was able to have lunch and it, she wow. said she said normally i wouldn't be able to do that so this is something that i, I wouldn't say it works 100% of the time but it's pretty darn close you know and so um but it was very interesting to go through that and see people you know get very angry because they're like well i need my medication let's just stop now let's just stop now <laughs> i have to go get i have to go get you know fill my prescription but then it's it, it was interesting because it did become part of their identity Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that you touch on, um, it became their identity to be this person with this problem that prevented them from working, that prevented them from, you know, skiing or whatever. Uh, and it really became the focus of their lives. And uh, many of them never went back to work after that or ended up changing careers. And maybe this was, a, you know, and some subconscious way a way for them to get out of the job that they had that they didn't like anymore uh but yeah it was it was it's you know without having read your book previously it was you know quite jarring to see how attached people became to that identity of the person with you know the busted elbow or the bum knee or whatever it was 
Yes, it's very sad to see that. I have many patients over the years whose primary identity is is that of being a patient. Um, often the most important people, if not the only people in their lives, are their doctors, the nurses, their caseworkers. They've often lost touch with family members. Um, maintaining that illness is not just crucial to their identity, but also crucial to their income if they're on disability, if they were to get better. Um, then they would lose that income. And, and perhaps most insidious of all, um, illness as identity, which has become so pervasive in our culture, fosters a victim narrative and victimhood as a right to be compensated. And in the context of a victim narrative, in my experience and in my opinion, people can't really get better. It's not an adaptive narrative because it's a narrative that requires them to remain ill and to always look outside themselves for somebody to heal them. And that's kind of, uh, in, you know, as I see that, whether your illness is, is addiction or whether it's chronic pain or what, whatever it is, um, it makes for very unhappy lives. Right, right, exactly. It's, um, it, is, it is very sad because I want to say, like just off the top of my head, that each person that was in that situation, you know, and couldn't do their work anymore and whatever, they had in the process driven everyone a away from them in their lives, you right. know, their, their families, mm -hmm. their closest friends. Oh, they just don't understand me. Well, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was really, um, I, I could imagine how isolating that becomes over time. In my treatment of patients with addiction, when they first come to me and they're trapped in the cycle of their addiction and intoxication, drug seeking, withdrawal, um, they very often have a victim or a blaming narrative where all the problems in their lives are caused by other people right. and they're not able to look at their own contribution. One of the most beautiful things about recovery for addiction and one way I know that my patients are getting better is that they begin to look at themselves and the ways in which they have contributed to their life problems mm -hmm. and they're no longer in that blaming stance or at least not as much. Right, right. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it always boggles my mind because, you know, just to refer to the internet, you know, you, there's no shortage of inspirational videos of somebody, you know, like this, the one guy, he's about two feet tall, um, doesn't even really, I think he's got, he's got like flippers for arms and like, you know, feet, but no legs and, you know, all of this stuff. And he's like, you know, <laughs> answering the phone on stage and giving people hugs and, you know, <laughs> like doing backflips. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking that he can do it. What's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's inspiring. Yeah. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so it's, it's so, you know, you see that and it's like, yeah, there's really no excuse. Right. Well, you know, I think maybe a way to frame it is to just see it as part of the pathology of that individual mm -hmm. um, and to try to help move them toward uh, building a different narrative, you know, have right. them, you know, slowly begin to reflect on I mean, after empathizing with all the ways in which, uh, you know, they've been undone or harmed by others, you right. know, begin to have them look at, well, you know, what, what do you think you, you know, you contributed? What, what are some of the character flaws you, you might have? Because we all have character flaws. So right. what might be some of yours? And when patients can start to look at that, then, then that's really a sign of progress. Right. Actually, that's, that's a very good point. And because when I uh, discussed people who got mad at me, one of the, the um, phrases that's often repeated in EFT, uh, emotional freedom technique, is, uh, you know, even though I have, you know, whatever the problem is, I deeply and, and completely love myself. I accept and forgive myself. And I think that 
forgiving myself, it's like, well, I didn't do anything. Why do I have to Mm -hmm. (laughs) forgive myself, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that is Mm -hmm. actually one of the things that um, will set people off. Um, because they're like, well, what about, or, or, or if they should forgive someone else for doing mm. something to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I think that when it comes to forgiving ourselves, it's not necessarily that we did the, you know, the, the last thing that caused the problem, but we trusted someone, you know, I forgive myself for trusting that person for doing mm. those things right. to me or, you know, whatever they did, but the, right. you know, they did what they knew how to do given the set of tools they were given, whether it was intentional or not, you know, whether it was their bad attitude or, or something that they were really trying to do the right way and they f-ed up. Um, that's just where they were in their journey. And unfortunately mm-hmm. you got in the way, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. So, um, I, I wanted to, uh, touch on what you call the professional patient and, you know, one, what that is. And two, when did you discover, you know, the, the story about how you discovered that this was a serious problem? The professional patient, as I've touched on a little bit um, today already, is that individual who completely identifies uh, with being a patient as their core identity in the world, but also relies on their disability income to pay their bills. And those individuals are in a unique bind because uh, they, in their patient role, go see doctors in order to um, get better or at least not get worse in their chronic illnesses. On the other hand, if they were to really make improvements, they might lose their disability payments. So it gets to be a, a catch-22. And often um, patients aren't fully conscious uh, of the ways in which they are sort of perpetuating their own illness. And they also have to validate their status as a patient uh, by taking medications. There, I uh, have in, in, I cite instances in the book where um, patients uh, patients don't qualify for disability unless they're taking certain types of powerful medications. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a phenomenon again, whereby uh, being a patient has become a way to pay the bills. Uh, the social safety net um, in this country for the poor, for the unemployed, for the undereducated, for the homeless is nearly non-existent. We eliminated welfare in the 1990s, and we largely re- replaced it with federally funded uh, disability for medical problems. Mm. So, you know, when we're medicalizing poverty, uh, what that means is that we're forcing individuals to uh, be ill uh, in order to um, secure an income. And when we make people show up in the healthcare system to pay the bills, they're, they're likely to get harmed by the, uh, the unnecessary uh, inter- health interventions or medical interventions that they receive, particularly if they get prescribed an addictive drug like an opioid. Right, right, right. And, and when you um, first started noticing, like, like, what was your revelation where you were just like, oh, man, this like person, you, you do mention one story of someone who was basically going to several doctors to get drugs. <laughs> right. Well, what I what I began seeing more and more of in my practice was patients coming in um, with multiple disorders for which there was no objective evidence. Um, they were on up to 20 medications a day. 
um, without any real reason for those medications. They were going to, you know, five to 10 different types of doctors, each doctor taking care of a, a different body part. And over time, they were really becoming ill through the experience of, of being a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one patient I talk about in the book, Sally, she, she's in a wheelchair and she actually has uh, diffuse muscle wasting and muscle atrophy from being in this wheelchair for more than 10 years. Mm. Um, and she says that she's in the wheelchair become, because of multiple sclerosis, but there's no objective evidence that she has multiple sclerosis. Right. So it's, it's, it's a very tragic scenario where patients adopt uh, the patient role for so many reasons, psychological reasons, financial reasons, um, and as, as a result, they end up sicker for it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, One thing that I've noticed as well, uh, talking to people is, you know, again, that there's that badge of honor, I'm sick, you know, I've got this, but they can also like, when you said professional, when you, you know, referred to professional patient, a lot of these people can talk better about their disease state than their own doctors. Oh yeah, they're you very know, knowledgeable, they, especially in this day and age with Google. Exactly. And the yeah, they really they know they know what they're talking about. Right, and it's and it's funny because it's almost like they they think by and I personally I think it's those ads on TV where they started like renaming you know things like incontinence. They you know uh, they would urinary incontinence. They would start calling you know overactive bladder <laughs> disorder. You know, just making up these these catchphrases and and cute little terms that people could identify with. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I see people, you know, they, it's almost as if they think that they've gone through medical school when they start telling you about the pathology of the disease and how it can only be treated this way. And <laughs> it's kind of an interesting. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think in some ways, I'm actually for this freer dissemination of medical knowledge. Yeah, for and sure. I'm very happy that people can access sources like the internet and read about, you know, illnesses and, and read about drugs and find out more and, you know, really educate themselves. Yeah. The, the problem is that the internet is completely blind to the quality of information at different sites. Exactly. So it's, it's very hard to have any kind of quality control around that. And I don't know what the solution for, for that is. In general, I think it's it's good for people to educate themselves as long as the sources that they're using are are reputable and that that's hard to control. Right, exactly. I know I, I completely agree. I think it is good that people you know can do that inf- can can do that research and can learn more about their bodies. Um, I, I think what worries me is when. No, you know, sort of like anything, you know, you can use it for good or you can use it for evil, right? So some people use it to, 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 uh, bolster their case as to why they can't get better. Well, because, I think you know, for, just, yeah, perhaps, mm-hmm. I was just going to say that they'll, they'll just, you know, choose which sites they want to pay attention to and then ignore the rest. Right. Well, and perhaps the phenomenon, you know, you're observing, I know I have experienced this is patients who come to see me who, already seem to know what kind of treatment they need and and makes me wonder what why they came to me in the first place if they already know do you know what i mean oh because yeah if, if they, i think it's corroboration they're looking for personally but uh-huh. yeah no you're absolutely right I, I i've seen that so do you find that when there is this kind of professional patient there is you know this person who 
knows everything about their disease. They're committed to taking the drugs and they want the surgeries, even though, you know, there's, like you said, with several cases, what you know about their health history doesn't really point to them needing most, if any, of the drugs that they're on. Does that somehow dilute or otherwise impact the legitimacy of treatment for people who do need it. People who are like in serious pain, people who are, you know, is it, is, is that becoming a, such a problem that the people who need it are not getting appropriate treatment? I think you're probably right about that. Uh, you know, that, that there are people out there who really do need opioids, for example, for their pain condition and are now having a lot of difficulty getting those medications because of the many numbers of people who have become addicted to opioids through through a doctor's prescription or otherwise. So I think you're right. Some of these phenomenon are probably contributing to um, poor quality care for individuals, even individuals who could benefit from some of these remedies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, my, my parallel there is uh, with celiac disease, you know, people finally acknowledging that it exists and then you've got, you know, regular gluten intolerance. And then you've got people who want to be part of the club, you know, they, right. <laughs> they feel they feel right. left out. And, you know, so yeah. they, they want they want gluten intolerance and they want to say that they're gluten intolerant. Um, and, you know, then you catch them eating a slice of bread when you're not looking and or when they think you're not looking. And then it just, you know, people go, well, this is just this is just a fad, you know, it's like and that's becoming a problem yeah. for the people who seriously mm-hmm. have the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you must in your work see a lot of people uh, who use uh, food and use nutritional diets or restrictions as sort of a way, as a way to gain identity or structure mm. their lives. I mean, which isn't necessarily all bad, right? If it leads to healthier habits, right? But uh, so often, you know, and and I and I talk about this a lot on on the show is that we've become a, a nation of eating disorders, and you know, it's mm. just a, it's just you know, pick pick and choose, right? Uh, my brother in law, he went to the doctor a couple of years ago, and the doctor got angry at him because he he doesn't follow any specific diet, you know, he just eats. And she was like, well, what diet do you follow? And he's like, I don't, I just, you know, I got food around. I mean, I'm not saying that he eats that well, but you know, she was like, well, you have to choose something. And so she wants, she wanted him to be in a box of something. And, and one of the things that I've argued o- over the years is that in, you know, because so few people still go to church or whatever temple, you know, they, they would, their families used to go to. So few people have the identity of religion, um, which, mm. you know, was often the, the kind of the, um, the center of everything. You know, that's how a lot of people, you know, until baptism at an, or, or confirmation, let's say, became a thing, you know, you were baptized at birth and that's when you were, you were written into the scrolls of your town that you were born, right? So <laughs> that was a way of controlling who was in the, t- knowing who was in the town. You were just immediately indoctrinated. Uh, we don't have have any any like core central faith anymore for most people and i think that uh for for food uh i don't know if it would be the same with with opioid drugs and you know being a professional patient but with food for certain you know a lot of people are are using their their vegan or paleo or whatever diet as their way of continuing the rest of their lives and you know Mm -hmm. it's it's the system upon which they base all their decisions Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that there there are some um, kind of core human 
I don't know if I could, I could, I could call it needs because even atheists, you know, have become so belligerent and so proselytizing <laughs> of, of their lack mm-hmm. of religion that it's become a religion uh, to be an atheist now. Right. So, so food is an food is an organizing principle in people's exactly, lives. Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of that, and I, you know, one of the, the messages I try to say is like, okay, you know, I, I personally, for what I've seen over the years, and, and many of our guests have agreed, uh, particularly those coming out of the Chinese medicine field, uh, because Chinese medicine is more about balance than just one mm. hardcore thing. But uh, you know, you follow exactly the same thing for eighteen to twenty-four months, and your body's like, I need a change. You know, the seasons have changed mm-hmm. around me. You know, we've had dryness and 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 uh, you know, cooling and all these different elements outside, and you have not changed what you're eating. And that's mm-hmm. when you start to see a lot of these diets start to fail because initially people feel great, and then you know, after a while they don't feel so great and they can't figure out why they're like, I'm still doing the same thing. And it's like, well, yeah, your body ebbs and flows just like the rest of nature. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a matter of paying attention to that, but enough about nutrition. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So you're really advocating for a, a more holistic kind of naturalistic rhythmic approach. Right. I mean, I, Cause I, I, I do, I mean, it's eating, you know, in high income societies with, in, all the access to food and and unhealthy food that we have. I mean, it is a challenge for all of us. Oh, for sure. Um, so you know, how 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 do people um, sort of meet that challenge? Uh, and it sounds like you're you're advocating for a sort of a, a moderate uh, kind of. A, approach to the whole thing as opposed to one of these extremist diets. And and I think that all of them, see, that's the thing is that all of these diets have some foundation in truth and they all have some value and, and some piece of the puzzle that they bring to the table that maybe we've overlooked, you know, so macrobiotics would never recommend it for anyone, (laughs) but they, they told us a lot about fermented foods that we had forgotten. Um, you know, there's the raw food movement. Yes, a certain amount of raw food is good. There's the paleo movement. Yes, we've been eating way too much grain. But th- that doesn't mean that you should follow any of those for the rest of your life. Therapeutically, I think they can all work beautifully. Uh, but for a, a long term approach, I like to see, you know, there's a reason why, you know, apples come into season a certain time of year or mm-hmm. pineapples mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Uh, you know, and I, I think there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that kind of s- cyclical nature around us and that we need to get a little bit more in tune with that uh so anyway let's get back to you <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to hijack no, your no, interview it's it's, no it's interesting it's um, interesting for me you know we don't learn much about nutrition in medical mm, school right as actually know, as that, i'm sure you know yeah unfortunately <laughs> and, and i'm sorry if i say anything against doctors <laughs> no no that's no okay. but you know actually i have a i have a wonderful young resident now uh who is very interested in nutrition as a way to help people with their mental health problems. And she's mm. a young, a young MD. So I think that may be shifting. Yes. And there are definitely some who, who have gotten it and, and many of them have gotten it similar to how I have, which is just through your own, you know, failures on the regular system. There's like, there's something mm-hmm. else out there. And, you know, for some of us, there is that, what we talked about before that finality, like, Oh, doctor didn't have something for me. Can't be fixed. Sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to, it mm-hmm. sucks to be me. And this is the life I'm going to leave. Uh, and then there's people like me who are going, well, heck, my ancestors never had this problem. And mm-hmm. my mom says that my mom was a registered nurse. So she t- she knew a lot about all of this stuff. 
um, she saw the differences in how things were handled. Um, and many of my aunts are also nurses. And they tell me about, you know, just the differences b- between when they first started working and where things ended up when they retired. Mm. And they're like, this is ridiculous that, you know, like my one mm. aunt, she worked in the NICU at uh, Albert Einstein Hospital. She said when she first started, you know, like maybe 40 years prior there, that it was very rare to see a baby come in at like you say 30 weeks like they saw maybe a few a year that would come in at you know uh, after 30 weeks of gestation she said by the time she left most of the children they were seeing were 20 weeks gestation Mm. Mm. or or, you know somewhere in that 20 week period Mm -hmm. so you know she's just seeing those changes and then Mm. you and if you look at the parallels and how different we've been eating in that time, mm-hmm. like what's, you know, even mm-hmm. the stuff that we think is the, is our, our time tested, you know, family recipes, all the ingredients have changed, you know, right. they're all GMO'd yeah. and low fat and high fructose corn syrup and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and aspartame and all this other crazy uh-huh. stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so actually the, what you were starting to say about, about this uh, young doctor is what I was uh, kind of leads to the next question I had for you, which is that uh, we had someone on the show previously named Julia Ross, and uh, she also deals with people with addictions, depression, anxiety, etc. And she uses amino acid therapy uh, because she sees the, you know, like you talk about the dopamine, for example, and, you know, just the different neurotransmitters. She sees that uh, replacing the amino acids that trigger those responses are, or those neurochemicals are, are very helpful. Do you get into that end of therapy or is it mostly about the narrative? Yeah, I don't know much about that. I've heard I've heard of patients taking those types of uh, monoamine precursors. I think they're mostly over the counter. Yeah, many of them. Uh, are. You don't you don't need a prescription, but right. I really don't know don't know much about that world at all. The bulk of my practice really has become treating p- patients with addiction and co-occurring psychiatric disorders, and also a de-prescribing. And de-prescribing is kind of a new a newly coined term mm-hmm. uh, to refer to getting people off of the many psychotropic and pain medications they've had started by other doctors. Mm. Okay. And then so what's the I guess to give people like an idea like a little flavor of of the process, you know, how I mean obviously I'm not expecting you to give away the farm, but <laughs> you know, when someone comes to you with an addiction, you know, is it confronting the addiction? Is it more um you know, meeting them where they are. Well, I guess no matter what, you have to meet them where they are. But That's you know what right. I'm saying? Like how how are you opening up that narrative with them and holding their hand, so to speak, to get through to where ultimately I think you both want them to be? I start by just listening to their story. You know, addiction narratives are are each as unique as human beings, but also have surprising numbers of similarities. And then we talk about, yeah, where where they are, uh, what they're willing to try next. Treatment is a combination typically of some kind of psychological or psychosocial intervention, maybe individual or group therapy, maybe going to a mutual help group, and also often um, some type of medication to help them uh, stop using the addictive drug that they're that they're addicted to. So so that's that's pretty pretty typical. 
um, for the kinds of interventions. I, I treat patients in an outpatient setting. Okay. Um, sometimes that's not enough for them and they need to have a more um, intensive level of treatment and then I refer them elsewhere. I'm also getting increasing numbers of patients referred to me who have become addicted or dependent on uh, prescription drugs like Valium mm-hmm. or Vicodin, you know, the opioids that we've talked about. And then I help those patients uh, get off of those medications. And that's a very uh, labor-intensive process. It can take a long time. It's very painful for patients. So that, that requires often months to years to do that work. Yeah, so that's that's what I do. Wow, that's uh, – God bless you. I, <laughs> I don't have the patience. <laughs> I'm like the people well, who want the pain, yeah. the pain really fast. Like, yeah, oh. right. But no, but seriously, I mean, it's, it's, that's what people have to realize that, you know, usually if you have an addiction, uh, I'm going to jump out, you know, just come out and say, I'm thinking it didn't happen overnight and recovery is likely not going to be overnight either. That's right. So we're a long time. So as a society, where do we go from here? Like how, how can we as a society kind of prevent falling into this slippery slope of addiction and, you know, addiction to, to prescription painkillers. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, on the prevention side of things, we need to get in um, earlier than ever in terms of uh, adolescence is the time that most people begin using addictive substances. And most people who, 90% of people who develop addiction later in life be, began using in adolescence. So that's really an important time. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've discovered, however, is that going into the schools, for example, and educating students about the dangers of addictive drugs doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, what does work is providing them with uh, alternative rewards or alternative uh, sources of uh, dopamine neurotransmitter, which is your your neurotransmitter that's typically uh, released when using addictive drugs. Mm-hmm. So we need to provide kids with uh, interesting, challenging things to do instead of using drugs. Um, and that's a, that's a tall order, but that's certainly really necessary. You know, so many teenagers today are just simply bored. They don't have anything to do. Tell me about um, it, but I give my kids stuff to do and she doesn't want to do it. <laughs> I'm like, but you're right. going to get bored, you know, <laughs> come on now. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Because the, in school, they, they even had here, they like bust a bunch of kids down to, you don't even know where I am, but they bust them like an hour away to this big rally. It was like all the schools from this side of the island got together and they were all, uh, you know, they had speakers and music and all this kind of stuff and teaching kids about drugs or whatever. And as far as I know, my kid doesn't take drugs. Um, you know, there's, there's sometimes, you know, parents don't know. Yeah, uh, but, really but yeah, you know, it's, it, it, I wonder to myself, is that enough? And, and like you said, you know, it's kind of that, uh, the old saying, um, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? Because mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. nothing to do. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. been like a challenge with us, you know? So what do you want to do? Piano, we bought you one, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or, mm-hmm. or guitar, you know, what, what are some of the things that you think, is it those kind of extracurricular activities, robotics and basketball, whatever, that type of thing? Or, or so, is it something so, else? So I, I, think, I think for adolescents, one of the most important um, activities that they can engage in is daily exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, you know, if, if either in the context of a group sport or some individual endeavor, but moving their bodies, reconnecting with their bodies and engaging in some sort of 
um, challenging physical exertion is, is absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. to decreasing the risk of addiction. The other important uh, tools that we need to teach our adolescents um, are how to regulate their emotions. So, so giving them the language and the tools, whatever those tools may be, meditation, prayer, mindfulness techniques, um, whatever, whatever, you know, your particular family or community um, um, espouses so that when they deal with the incredible surges and ups and downs of emotions in that, in a, in an adolescence, they can begin to, um, you know, uh, learn how to manage those emotions. Mm -hmm. So I think those are, those are the really important. And then of course, community being tied to a community, feeling that you're part of a family and part of a community and you have an important place there. We know that's very protective. We know that um, people who are actively involved in religious organizations have a lower risks of developing addiction. So, uh, you know, that, 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 that can be very helpful. So on the prevention side, you know, that, that's the type of thing. The, the other thing I think on the treatment side is to, to better educate doctors about how to identify and, and treat addiction and, and do that from the first day of medical school. Right now, medical school education is impoverished by the lack of training uh, in detecting and treating addictive disorders. So that's a really important piece. We also need to build an infrastructure within the House of Medicine to treat addiction and get insurance companies to pay for that treatment. And on a much larger scale in terms of at the societal level, I think we need to carefully consider that medicine has become the de facto social safety net. Mm -hmm. And if we're really going to ask doctors to take care of not just diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and chronic pain, but also unemployment, um, homelessness, multi-generational trauma, then we have to make sure that we give the doctors the tools to address those issues because otherwise they're going to be left shoehorning what are really psychological and socioeconomic issues into the very small um, um, kind of circumscribed definition of a, of a medical illness, and that's not going to help anyone. Uh, if we decide that we don't think that medicine should be our social safety net, then I think we have to bring back a different social safety net to, to, to address these problems. And then I would say finally, you know, in terms of the way that medical care is organized and doctors are incentivized to get patients in and out, to prescribe pills, to do procedures, we really need to bring back the primacy of the doctor-patient relationship mm -hmm. And to pay doctors and other healthcare providers for actually spending time with patients and talking to patients and not just reimburse them for prescribing pills or doing procedures. Right. Well, that's a, that's a pretty tall order because we know that insurance companies are not they're, they're not right. big on on that. Um, and, yeah, that's. That's a whole other <laughs> thing to to get involved with, but yeah, once you get wrapped up in in that and um, and on the patient side too, well, my insurance would only pay for this, so this is what I'm going to do. That's uh, right. You know, I see that all the time. Oh, do you take insurance? Sorry, I can't because I spend time with you. Right. You know, yeah. and and that's not what the insurance company wants. Um, right. And you know, my kids got to eat too. So. Um, do you do uh, any training of doctors yourself at this point or, you know, otherwise, are, are you speaking to doctors at conferences and and making them aware of this and letting them know that they're not alone in experiencing these these patients coming through their door and this kind of maybe it's even a self-doubt about how to deal with patients, you know, who come in just drug seeking? Yep. 
so I would say that more than 50% of my professional time in the last five to 10 years has been dedicated toward educating other physicians, all stages nice. in their career in this area, because I feel very strongly that we need to prevent the harm being done to patients because of our own ignorance about these issues. I'm glad to say that uh, my book has been um, surprisingly well received among the medical community, despite nice. a title drug dealer MD, especially among young younger doctors. I've been very honored recently to be invited um, by the uh, Johns Hopkins University Bayview Internal Medicine residents as their annual visiting professor and give grand rounds there. And so I, that was very, that was a great honor for me. I, I get asked to do a lot of medical talks, but to be invited by this young group of residents who read my book and, and believe in my vision is, is really encouraging that, you know, this younger generation of physicians is not going to make, make the mistakes that my generation made. Right, right. Yeah. And it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, I guess yeah, as someone who's self-employed, people think like, oh, a doctor, you know, he can just decide whatever. And, you know, he knows everything. But you know, what we don't know is the stuff going on behind the scenes and not only the drug sure. companies, but just the way that your hands are tied. That's you right. Know, right. Um, you're, you know, there are, you know, I've, <laughs> I do, I, I do my share of uh, doctor bashing, but that's based on the, the doctors who have kind of <laughs> me in the past. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you We've know, I've been there. Again, another can of worms. Uh, but, but there are, um, you know, there are many good doctors out there. And I, I'm finding that, you know, the answer is often, the answer is often somewhere in the middle. But, uh, you know, a lot of these old time guys, like people think, oh, well, they're, you know, he's older. He doesn't know what to do. Like I've, I've had actually had some, some of these people I told you about with the pain problems. Well, he's an old guy. He's, he told me to go home and, you know, rest it and put ice on it. I, I don't need ice. I need drugs, you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, some of the, some of the guys in between, you know, kind of lost that vision, you know, maybe they got into medicine for the wrong reason. You know, some of these guys, you know, as you know, there are people like you who genuinely want to help people, but there are some who you know, I, I've had them tell me, well, what am I going to do? The insurance won't pay for it. I got to make money. You know, so, um, you know, there are some that, that are, you know, they, they, I guess they think they're killing two birds with one stone. You know, I'm going to help people and I'm going to make a lot of money. And then they get in and find out that the helping part wasn't as, um, as obvious, right, right. <laughs> robust, I like that word, robust, as as they had, that, that module yeah. kind of got skipped over. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a marriage of convenience. Right, and so, out in the end. right, and then at the end, you know, like all they had left to, to um, look forward to was, you know, the yacht or whatever they right. thought they were going to buy with the money. Or, or maybe even the lawsuit at this point. Cause well, that's oh, talk about a can of worms. Yeah. Um, I, I was horrified to find out what doctors pay. I, I want to, there was, there were several doctors when, cause I, I used to do um, my drug repping was done over the internet. And so I would talk to like 20 doctors a night uh, at this job. And you know, sometimes I didn't really have much to tell them because I was the only one who talked about the side effects of the drugs because I wanted to make mm. sure that they knew what was going on. And they good would always say to me, well, you know, that was part of how I how I I felt good about getting a paycheck was that I, <laughs> I said, you know what, if I'm going to be here, I'm supposed to talk about anything about the drug. Well, I'm going to tell them about the side effects because nobody else does. And uh, and then I'd ask them and they would say, oh, you know, somebody came in today and they didn't tell me about that or mm. or I had uh, or I had a patient asking me for this. And I, I and I wasn't sure I should give it to her. And now I know why. You know, so there. So I do feel like I did some good in that position, uh, 
you know, trying to let them know. But yeah, several doctors, sometimes we would just, because we'd have to spend, you'd say, you know, five to 10 minutes on the line. And so I would just talk to them about their practice and they would say like, oh yeah, I just paid my insurance. How much? And they're talking like six figures for insurance for the year. I'm going, what? Are you crazy? Oh yeah, no, it's, you know, one of the saddest things that I have seen more and more of is patients started in particular on benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium, Mm -hmm. who were, at least by their report, and I, I believe it, never told by the doctor that these medications were potentially addictive or habit forming. And I think there are quite a few doctors out there who may not even know that medications like Valium and Xanax are addictive. Um, So I think it's really important to know what the side effects are and to make sure that patients have informed consent, including uh, for the risk of addiction when, when uh, when starting a medication. Right, right. And actually, you, you, uh, that was actually one of the questions I had meant to ask at the beginning was that you talked, uh, you talk also in, in the book about the quality of care being measured. And we had to do this as, as reps, you know, on the scale of, of one to 10, what's your pain? You know, that, right. that whole pain scale. So the, the doctors right. now being judged based on how much pain their patient is in, as opposed to whether or not the patient got better, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, and those kinds of pain scales have not been shown to improve pain outcomes. The only thing they've been correlated with is more opioid prescribing, mm. which we know is is most of what got us into this opioid epidemic in the first place. The other danger of those pain scales is that for people with chronic pain, one of the worst things you can do is to get them to focus intently on their pain. The real task at hand for chronic pain patients is learning to distract themselves from the pain. So if we're constantly asking them to rate their pain on a scale from one to 10, we're not really doing them any favors. Right. You're validating it, if nothing else. Well, you're encouraging those neural circuits that are already um, hyperstimulated. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There was a quote that you had in here that I thought was so perfect and, and it, you know, has so many parallels, uh, to what I was even saying about, uh, you know, f- food and cults and, and religion. Um, very similar. Uh, you say in a world in which the struggle for basic survival, food, clothing, shelter has become larger, largely irrelevant for most Americans, the ill person is among the last of the great warriors. And I, that, that sentence really for me, just really hit home kind of the underlying, maybe not the, not the under, but one of the, the probably strongest uh, cases as to why this has become so pervasive and so widespread. And, you know, people who, you know, w- you know, maybe, I don't know, would they have been addicted to street drugs if they, if they didn't have these, these uh, outs, but it, it's, it's almost like a legalizing way of saying like, it's okay. You can take, you can just keep taking more because you're in this special category. That's right. That's right. And I think we're all desperate for heroes. And really, there are no ways to be a hero in, in modern culture anymore. Mm. But one of the few ways remaining is is the, you know, the diseased person or the ill person who, through no fault of their own, is struggling against, you know, mightily struggling against an, an illness. So this is a very attractive a societal uh, role. And certainly, if you had to choose between being an ill person and being a homeless, unemployed person, right. um, you know, it goes without saying that you would choose the illness identity. 
And when the illness identity is, is that incentivized and then um, needs to be validated through the use of potentially addictive prescription drugs, it's, it's no wonder we find ourselves in this current epidemic. Well, I mean, we, we, we love the underdog, don't we? You know, we like to see Clark Kent beat up, get beat up and then turn into Superman. <laughs> Like to, yeah. you know, we, we like to see these these kind of uh, triumph over yeah, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. This is like our 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 culture has been very much um, framed around rooting for for the person who you know seemed to be the the least likely hero, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, it just kind of perpetuates all of that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Anna, for being with us today. And uh, you don't have a website, uh, but you do have your book, which is Drug Dealer MD. You can find it on Amazon.com. We'll have links to it on our website. And Anna, if you have any anything to share with us, please come back and see us again. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a bunch. Aloha. Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved NutritionHeretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at NutritionHeretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash NutritionHeretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.